actress Catherine Heigl, a passionate animal advocate who has saved over 16,000 dogs, says she's been seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. She believes there's a link between canine health and diet. After extensive research, she developed Superfood Complete, a dog food pack with over 30 wholesome ingredients, including superfoods beneficial for your furry friend. Superfood Complete isn't just about deliciousness, though dogs love the taste. It's about supporting overall well-being. In addition to providing a healthy option for your pet, Badlands Ranch, the maker of Superfood Complete, also supports the Jason DeBus Heigl Foundation, which helps rescue countless dogs and find them loving homes. Dogs across America are trying this food and loving it. Go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 and order right now to get up to 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 today. Rob Elementary School, Uvalde, Texas, May 24th, 2022, 21 dead, 19 of those school children, 22 if you count the shooter. By now, everyone has likely heard about this incident in one way or another. What happened during the shooting is bad enough. What happened before it seems like I'll be reading from a manual a politician put out. What happened after the bullet started flying? Well, that and all the rest will be the topic of discussion on this episode of Music City 911. This is the Rob Elementary School Active Shooter. I want to start this episode out with a few things. In other episodes, even though most of the episodes I've done are talking about pretty horrible things in general... Some of them can be educational. That sounds bad. But if what happened in one of those episodes and the incident that was talked about, whether it be the 911 call or the police audio listened to or anything else in there, if that can help prevent or help train to better handle a future occurrence of something similar, I'll keep pushing these episodes out. It's all very hard stuff to hear and know about. But that's what first responders have to deal with. We deal with pain, injuries, crimes, medical issues, death, and we do it all on a daily basis. In regards to this episode, I 1000% didn't want to cover this. It's sickening on so many levels. But I'm hoping that someone, whether they're a 911 dispatcher, a police officer, SWAT coordinator, police chief, or even someone in areas of local, state, or federal government can hear this and take something away from it. Because of that, 
I'm more than willing to talk about this tragedy. The second thing, the shooter in this, from what I can tell, it looks as if he was seeking some sort of fame or notoriety in doing this. As such, I'm not going to give that to him. His name won't be mentioned in this episode. I'll refer to him as suspect or attacker or shooter, something along that line, but not his name. Past that, a word of warning up front. Some of the audio as well as details in this, you likely haven't heard on other news sources. As much as I've looked into this, a lot of these details are new. It's not easy to listen to. This is involving children. If this is something you believe you can't handle, please don't try to. Have a listen to one of my other episodes. And lastly, I'll be talking about this today in kind of a rough timeline. A lot of this came from the committee report that was very recently released. And I say rough timeline because some of this started years ago and bits of it are still unknown. With all that being said, let's get on with it. The shooter started his life born in Fargo, North Dakota on May 16th, 2004. He was a second child. He had an older sister. His mother, who was not married to the suspect's father and ended up later splitting up from him pretty early in the shooter's life, she was a Uvalde, Texas native. After the split with her boyfriend, she moved back to Uvalde. The father wasn't a staple in the shooter's life, seeing him pretty infrequently. The mother worked a series of jobs, a lot of restaurants around Uvalde, and had a history of both drug and personal problems. Because of this, her relationship with her kids wasn't always the greatest either. Later on in life, the shooter ended up living with his grandmother, who was a retiree of the school system there in Uvalde and was generally well-regarded in the community. In the suspect's early years, going back to pre-K, his teacher regarded him as a wonderful student who was always ready to learn. Later on, as early as third grade, he was falling behind in school. He was having poor testing and possibly other problems too. The shooter himself later on did an internet search for dyslexia, believing he might have that disorder, but he was never formally diagnosed. He also did have a speech impediment. He would stutter. He and his family also fell squarely within the vast majority of the families there in Uvalde, living at or below the poverty level, and as such would wear sometimes the same clothes multiple days in a row to school. The bullying started around then and continued into the fourth grade. A cousin of the suspect was in his fourth grade class and witnessed some of the bullying, one occasion having him the target of a girl in class who tied his shoelaces together, which made him fall and injure his face. There was also talks that the bullying wasn't just involving other students. There was a possibility that some of the teachers also poked fun of him for his stuttering. Overall, he didn't get into a lot of trouble at school. His only disciplinary record was when he got into a single fight and was suspended for three days. A likely reason for him not getting into too much trouble while he was actually in school 
because he was actually rarely in school anyway. Starting in 2018, he consistently missed a lot of school, averaging over 100 absences every year. Most standard school years around America are around 180 days. There's no set reason why truancy issues weren't pushed further, but it's believed because of the poverty level there in Uvalde is so widespread that it's rarely pursued. So in general, it seems kids may miss a lot of school there and them and their parents are not having much in the realm of punishment for it. By the time 2021 rolled around, his academic skills still hadn't caught up and he'd only finished ninth grade when at that point he should have been starting as a senior in grade 12. Because of his academics and his consistently poor attendance in school, he was expelled and voluntarily removed. To note, this was after the COVID pandemic when schools nationwide weren't doing an in-person class for a long time. During all this, the shooter grew more and more isolated. He had a girlfriend there for a while who described him as lonely and depressed and told the FBI when she was questioned that he was teased by peers who would actually call him a school shooter. And it's worth noting earlier on in that same school year that some other peers jumped him. He and that girlfriend later broke up. She told that he would constantly say he wasn't going to live past 18 because he would kill himself or that he just wouldn't live that long. She also explained she believed he was sexually assaulted by one of his mom's boyfriends at an early age, but that couldn't be verified. A newer boyfriend of the mom was interviewed and said he would get in arguments frequently with his mom in which he would punch holes in the wall. The shooter's loner-type attitude continued after the breakup with his girlfriend, and his possible only friend moved away. Dark clothing, combat boots, and growing his hair long became normal style for him. This was him in person. Past that, though, he had a vast amount of social media accounts. YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, and even a French streaming site named Ubo. He played a wide range of violent video games. When he was playing those games and lost, he became overly enraged making threats, and even talking down to females that were playing. He would try his best to terrorize him with detailed talks of rape and other violence. He began to show interest in violent sex and gore. On the social media sites I mentioned, he would share videos and pictures of gruesome things like suicides and beheadings. Internet searches he did indicated that he thought he was a sociopath. With these streaming and other social media sites he was on, he became focused on becoming famous. He wanted fame and notoriety, but it seemed he wasn't sure how to achieve it. He started looking into and talking openly about school shootings. On the French streaming site, he talked so much about it that he got the nickname Ubo's School Shooter. On Snapchat, he would pose with a BB gun while wearing a tactical-style vest he had bought, which was a bulletproof plate carrier, but without the actual bulletproof insert. None of this was reported to the police. 
in late 2021, he started getting jobs. The first one at a Whataburger fast food restaurant. He was only there for a little over a month, but was fired after threatening a female co-worker. And then he later moved on to another fast food restaurant, Wendy's, where he threatened to fight another employee after a disagreement about guns came up. He also sometimes worked with his grandfather at his air conditioning business. Because he had no bills to pay out, he saved all of his money up and told people he knew he was saving for something big and that everyone would see him in the news one day. With the money he had saved up, he started buying gun and tactical type accessories. He was only 17 at the time, so he wasn't able to legally buy a gun yet, but that didn't stop him from trying. He attempted twice to do what's called a straw purchase, which is having someone else that can legally buy a gun buy it for them, someone who's not allowed to buy or own a gun. Later on in 2021, the arguments with his mother continued, one of which he streamed live on Instagram. Police were called to the scene by some family members who watched it, but no one was arrested. At that point, he left and moved in with his grandmother. At his grandmother's house, he had no room. He slept on the living room floor. During his stay there, he continued with his buying. He purchased a holographic sight for a rifle, a trigger system, and 60 magazines for rifles. When he turned 18, around a week before the incident, he was able to purchase guns and ammo. He ordered a very expensive rifle online, as well as ammo, and had it shipped with a gun going to the gun store that's licensed to do transfers. The way this works is, yes, you can buy a gun online, but the process in doing so is just as difficult, if not harder, to do it in person. You have to order the gun online, then find a federal firearms licensed dealer to have it shipped to, pay for the shipping, and once it's actually at the dealer, you have to go and fill out all the background check paperwork which is the same paperwork you'd have to fill out and turn in if you were just there buying a gun straight off the shelf in the store. The dealer will then run the information, and if everything checks out, you own the gun, minus another fee for the transfer and background check. The gun he ordered was a Daniel Defense AR-15-style rifle. The total cost with the tax and transfer was $2,054. The ammo he bought was 75-grain hollow-point boat tail. Most people listening may not know what that is, but to give you an idea, a standard AR-15 round is 55 grain. This is more than 25% heavier, meaning it will have more energy. The hollow points, once they hit their target, they expand, which makes a bigger wound channel. Ammo like this is typically used for either self-defense or hunting mid-sized game like deer. He bought 1,740 rounds of it at a cost of $1,761. He later went back to the same store and bought another AR-15, a Smith & Wesson, for $1,081 and another 375 rounds, this time of 55-grain M193 ammo. 
the cost of this wasn't listed in the report, but going on the kind of average price of this, I would imagine he paid somewhere around $225 to $250 with tax. The M193 ammo is a lighter round, which makes it go faster. Depending on the armor type, M193 travels fast enough to make it armor-piercing. I can't be certain, but it seems his plan was to have ammo to do both as much damage to the people he was shooting and possibly fight it out with police who had body armor on after they arrived. The attacker was completely inexperienced with guns. Family said they believed he had never even shot a gun before. But even with his lack of knowledge of guns, he continued with his online barrage of foreshadowing. He was in an Instagram group with some other local kids, one of which said, people at school talk shit about you and call you a school shooter. Later on, later on, he sent a message saying, are you still going to remember me in 50-something days? And then later, sent another one saying, probably not. Hmm. All right, we'll see in May. On May 14th, he wrote simply, 10 more days. He started sending out pics of his rifles as well. Although it wasn't listed in the report, I'm guessing that his one close friend that had moved away, he was texting with him. The conversation went back and forth, sort of like this, starting with the friend. I'm going to probably go out to Uvalde in the summer. We should link up. The reply was, damn, why are you coming here? If it's before May 23rd, I'm down. The reply back was to visit you. If I get a car by then, probably go in July or August. The shooter's reply, damn, that's too late. I'm about to get two ARs. You want to see? At that point, he sent a picture of the rifles he wanted to buy and then said, I just spent 1652 on ammo and 2150 on some AR. The friend's reply was, slap my head. You're giving me school shooter vibes. He continued his planning just days before the attack. He met with his cousin and spent time with his cousin's son who went to Robb Elementary and was getting details about the schedules and how the lunch periods work. On May 24th, the day of the attack, it was considered awards day at Robb Elementary. The original plan, as mentioned earlier, looked to have been May 23rd. That date had significance because his senior classmates from high school, ones that likely bullied him at some point, were going to do a tradition that involved walking the halls of the elementary school most of them went to during lunchtime. The shooter wasn't able to go on that day because some of the ammo he had ordered didn't arrive until late in the evening on the 23rd. His time at his grandmother's wasn't grand either. He would get in arguments with her, and on the day of the attack, they had another one in the morning. He was on her phone plan, and she threatened to cut him off from it. She called AT&T to do just that. During that time, he was sending messages to a female acquaintance that he had made that lived in Germany, one that earlier on he was FaceTiming with. When he started the text, he said, I got a little secret I want to tell you. Then he wrote, waiting for this bitch. 
I'm going to do something to her right now. Oh my God. She's on the phone with AT&T about my phone. It's annoying. The next message he sent said, I just saw my grandma in her head. I'm going to go and shoot up an elementary school right now. He did shoot his grandmother in the face. He then stole her truck. He had no driver's license and apparently didn't really know how to drive either. While driving down South Grove Street towards the school, he lost control of the truck and crashed it into a large ditch that had water runoff. This was at around 11.28 a.m. The crash was captured on security camera at the Hillcrest Memorial Funeral Home across the street. Two men saw the crash and started walking over to see if anyone needed help. The suspect got out of the truck and started shooting at the men. They both ducked down and ran away for safety. At this point, he threw a backpack over a five-foot-tall fence and then climbed over it. Reports were that someone called 911 about the crash and then the shooting. That and other calls have not been formally released. The elementary school gym coach was outside with some third graders and saw all this happen. She thought that she might be the one being fired on and made it back to the classroom to get a radio and asked for the school to go on lockdown. No lockdown was immediately put out. The shooter walked towards a parking lot at the school and continued to fire his gun. Officers at that point began responding. Once they arrived at the scene, they could hear shots but couldn't tell exactly where they were coming from. One officer testified to the committee that he thought officers were being fired on directly. He looked towards the playground and saw small children dressed in brighter colors running away. And then he saw a person wearing all black also running. The officer raised his rifle and asked Sergeant Coronado, who was beside him, if he had permission to shoot. The sergeant testified that he hesitated because he knew of the kids that were there and was afraid of hitting one of them. This is something that's been widely put out on the news. It turned out that that person in black was another coach from the school. So in this portion, at least, the hesitation of the action was actually a good thing. The school had problems with their lockdown procedure. The policy of the school was to always have the interior doors of the school closed and locked. The interior doors there were solid metal with a small pane of glass. These doors, by law, must open to the outside, swinging out in the hallway and not inward, and have an automatic closing function. In the report, it said these doors can only be locked from the outside. I'm not sure how a teacher could lock the door from the outside and still manage to get back in the class. It may have meant to say lock from the inside, but I could be missing something on that. The school district's police officers would do walkthroughs to check to see if doors were locked down. If they found a door that was unlocked, they would remind the teachers to keep them locked. Teachers who did this often would be documented of the policy violations they had done. One of the problems is apparently at all the schools there in Uvalde is that teachers would prop their doors open. They would use door stops, rocks, wedges, and sometimes magnets to keep the doors open just a little bit. Teachers would say this is only a temporary thing when a child had to be out of the classroom going to a restroom or sometimes they would claim they didn't have a key to their own classroom. 
One report from March 2022 said that Class 111 had a malfunctioning lock. It wouldn't always lock. It could lock, but it took extra effort pulling the door completely shut to make it lock. The head custodian testified he never heard of this, and if he did, he would have put him in work order to have it fixed. On the day of the shooting, the principal tried to use an application called Raptor to put out the lockdown. But where she was in the school, she had a poor Wi-Fi signal and it didn't work. For some reason, she didn't use the school's intercom system either to try to put the lockdown out. She ended up calling the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District Police Chief, Chief Arredondo, and tell him of the situation, at which point he said to lock it down. Word of mouth to lock down started spreading around the school, and the principal instructed the custodian to go and ensure all the doors were locked. The custodian started doing some of the lockdown, but the shots kept getting closer, and he ended up going to the cafeteria for shelter. Shots continued to be fired outside of the school. Classes inside were being locked down, but not at the pace they should have been. As all this is going on, it's believed and has been reported by Daily Mail from the UK that one of the security cameras caught half of a 911 call from a teacher inside the school. I have to be clear, this hasn't been confirmed, but the audio sounds like she very well could be on the phone with a dispatcher. As I said before, this is not the whole call, if it is one at all, from the teacher. This is just audio from a security camera, so it's only capturing her part of it. I'm going to go ahead and play that part now. Audio wasn't very good at all from this. It started off with the teacher saying, I can't see him. I can't see him. He's shooting. The kids are running. Oh my God. Then you hear gunshots. She then says, get down and repeats over and over, get in your rooms. More gunshots are heard. Then you hear her ask someone, is he inside the building? Is he inside? And that's followed by even more gunshots. This was while the shooter was still outside. At around 11.32, the shooter made entry to the school through one of the exterior doors. He walks in, then takes an immediate right, walking towards rooms 111 and 112. Those room numbers are important. I don't know if you recall, room 111 was the one with the faulty lock. After he rounds the corner, 
he gets to room 111 and 112 right around 11.33 in the morning. On the security video, a child walking down the hallway out of sight from the shooter can be seen walking up and nearly turning the corner. He stops when he sees the guy walking down the hallway with a gun. The shooter manages to reach room 111 and 112, stands back from the doorway, and opens fire on the door. The child at this point runs the opposite direction. Here's more audio from that security camera that's inside the school when the shooting started. I'm going to let this play out, as difficult as it is to listen to. This is from where he starts shooting from outside in the hallway into the classroom, then makes entry into the classroom and continues shooting. This is going to be a couple minutes long. There will be some pauses in it, but this is played out in real time. Officers made entry to the school at 11.35. The first two officers in, they ran towards where the shots were being fired. You can hear in the audio I'm about to play a shots fired call go out on the radio. In total, during this next little bit that I'm about to play, around 10 police officers are either directly in front of the door where the shooting is happening or taking up positions on each end of the hallway 
I'll play that clip now. shots fired aside from the very first few came from inside the classroom when officers moved to the classroom they noticed bullet holes in the door shell casings on the floor and a smoky look to the air likely from the sheetrock being hit when officers took position in front of the door the shooter fired through the door the first officer that was in had something hit the back of his head I don't believe it was a bullet but possibly debris from the bullet going through the door and into the wall. Officers at that point moved back to the end of the hallway. No shots were fired through the door by the officers. Chief Arredondo noticed that there was a light on in room 110, which is south of room 111. He testified that he wondered if there could be a threat inside that room and entered it. He saw that there were holes in the wall, but the room was vacant. He also testified that he prayed that if 110 was empty, that there were no children inside the room that the shooter was in. I didn't point this out earlier, but in the initial audio of the shots being fired, you can hear, just barely, screaming going on. The screams had stopped by the time the officers made entry into the building. A lot of talk has been made about why officers didn't make entry into the room immediately. The same chief said that because he and other officers heard no screams, he thought maybe the classrooms had no children in it, and that at that point, they had the suspect cornered. At that point, he moved the classification from an active shooter to a barricaded suspect. Early on, I can see why he would think that. But looking back now, we all know that's a mistake about the worst kind 
that can happen. The same chief later testified that because they had officers on both sides of that classroom, they could act as a barrier so kids from other classrooms could get out. Bullets were still flying, so they didn't want them to go down the hallway, but they wanted them to go out through windows. The plan was to break out windows and then get the children out that way. Other responders on the scene testified that they thought the same thing about the absence of kids in the room. They didn't know they were victims and didn't know anyone needed any rescue or medical attention. There was no visual confirmation of injuries or other information about this, so they changed their tactics to that of handling a barricaded suspect and not an active shooter. As we've talked about in the show before, a tactic now with barricaded suspects is to try to communicate with them and wait them out, trying to make them give up peacefully. If this was a barricaded suspect, this would be the correct way to do this. With all this in mind, 73 minutes passed before officers made entry into the room to kill the suspect. There were a lot of problems in here, though, the main one being communication. As a dispatcher, we're tasked with passing along vital information as quickly as possible to the units on the scene of something like this. This only works if it reaches the correct people. Chief Arredondo was in the hallway when all this was going on. When officers from other agencies started arriving, they were told that he was in charge. A big problem that was going on. When the chief arrived on the scene... He left his radio in his car. All he had for communication was his phone, which he used several times. He was on the south side of the classroom. Other officers were on the north side. He used his phone to call those north side officers. I'm going to circle back around to that in a minute, though. Everyone there assumed Chief Erdondo was in charge. From everything it seems, though, He never set up an incident command and never took the role as being command. If he were, he shouldn't have been in that hallway. He should have been outside the school orchestrating all possible actions, then sending teams to execute those actions. But he remained in the hallway. Other officers could have set up command, but none of them did. They just all assumed that Chief Arredondo was already command. Any misinformation could have been sorted through and passed along much better if this were the case. You have to have an established incident commander. They need to be on the outside, not in a hot zone, and give them a damn radio. Back to the communication part of it, though. As said before, the initial responding officers heard no screams and had no visual evidence that there were any victims. They made it inside at 1135. A little after 12, a call came in to 911 from a child inside the room saying he was in a room full of victims. This information was related to the scene and passed around by officers outside and then to the inside to some of the officers that were on one end of the hallway. This was all captured on body-worn camera. I'll go ahead and play that part now. Room 12, where's room 12? Well, it's not the same room, it's the 
Full of victims. Child call 911. The room is full of victims. Child 911. Child 911 call. Okay, you wanna you wanna start getting kids out? I can start jumping. Hold on, let me get we're in here. Man. Hey, who's in charge of tax? It's gonna take time. We all need banks. We got gas? We got They're bringing victims. gas and banks. We got victims in there. There's victims in the room with us? Child on the phone, multiple victims. A child just call if they have victims in there. We call 911. Was that gas? Yeah, gas. They don't have gas masks. No, no. They should. 702, do y'all have y'all's masks? Look at my masks. Hey, if you look, I can go get my mask. <laughs> 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 what was that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at like 45 minutes out. That's what I'm saying. We have, if there's, <clears throat> if there's kids in there saying, if there's, is it kidding people or is it, oh, wait, did your mommy shot? Is your mommy shot? No one knows what kids or anything else like that? But yeah. No, there's a kids and teachers in there. But there's a, there's a student in there. Somebody needs to tell 302 to get off the radio respectfully. Here is the problem that came from that. When officers got on the scene and had no way of confirming any victims, I can see why they wouldn't treat it as an active shooter. I think myself as well as anyone else would also assert, though, that while you had no confirmation there were any victims, you also had no confirmation there weren't. They got their confirmation in that 911 call. At that point, tactics should have changed and done so rapidly. It is unclear if the info that I was just mentioning about the 911 call was passed along to the chief that they were victims still inside the classroom. Chief Arredondo was waiting on other elements to make entry into the room. He and other officers weren't sure it was locked. It also seemed that they didn't have adequate training on breaching doors that opened to the outside like in the school. They obtained a Halligan tool which is used to open doors like this and tried it on another door, but it was determined it would take too long to open the door that way. There was also an extensive search for a master key that would work in every door, but even after one was thought to have been found, it was tried on another locked door and found to not work. No one contacted the principal who did have a master key that would have worked. It didn't matter, though. It was found out later on that the door was never locked. Valuable time was wasted in efforts trying to get into that door that were never needed. Finally, at 12.50, officers from the BORTAC unit, which stands for Border Patrol Tactical Unit, made entry into the room, exchanging gunfire with a suspect, thus killing him. They found the victims when they finally got into the room. In total, 19 students and two teachers were killed, and another 17 were injured. 
If you add in the shooter's grandmother, that brings the injured number to 18. She did manage to survive. I know this is a lot of information about this. And as I have done the research, it was a lot more than has been put out by any two minute long news clip of what happened. But this investigation is still ongoing. The report that was released was only an initial report. More findings are expected to come. I'm not sure how much of any of video or any 911 calls or radio traffic will be released. But if it is, a follow-up episode may need to be done. Even with all this info today in this episode, I didn't go into every single detail. Some stuff was left out. I know. But this hopefully will give a much better picture of what went on there in Uvalde back in May. I hope all the survivors can receive as speedy of a recovery as possible. And I hope the families of the victims, as well as any dispatchers and responders there on the scene, can get past witnessing all this. I know it's going to be hard. That'll do it for this episode of Music City 911. Click the links in the show notes to follow my social media or contribute to the show on Patreon. Share the episode with anyone you think might like to listen to it. And just as always, for Music City 911, I'm Brandon, and y'all try your best to have a good one.